This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. We're back in the world of robots uh, for this week's Matt Splained. Robots and automation have helped us cope with and manage during the coronavirus. Uh, but could these short-term solutions end up being long-term disasters for our employment prospects? Resident artificial human Matt Armitage is no stranger to the trend of end sourcing. Matt, don't you mean insourcing? Hey, Richard. Well, of course, you know, insourcing is the practice of using in-house personnel to do jobs or work that might have been outsourced or similarly recruiting or hiring talent internally on a temporary basis, again, to avoid outsourcing cost. But I'm using the term end-sourcing to mean something a little bit different from either those insourcing or outsourcing ideas. This sounds like another one of those words you, you've just made up, Matt. Well, look, I need to be remembered for something, even if it's a dodgy management buzzword. You know, <laughs> I, I want my name to go down in posterity. But <laughs> I thought it would be a useful vehicle because uh, the idea of insourcing contains elements of both outsourcing and insourcing. These are essentially technological solutions that are employed to replace human workers. Uh, they may be physical robots that the company buys or develops and deploys, or they could be cloud-based machine services that either have artificial intelligence or don't have. And these services may be owned by the company or rented or leased from a third party. Now, the reality of either of these is likely to be a lot more convoluted um, Things like how are they managed and controlled? You know, increasingly mm. that data resides on servers from companies like Amazon or Azure. Uh, the company you rent machine solutions from is also likely to be renting server space from one of those giants. So it's this crazy, huge, intertwined and interdependent loop. But why the end part? Well, another term you might have uh, heard that's more mainstream and widely used is technological unemployment, which right. is used for people whose jobs have been replaced by the march of progress. So when we use the term unemployment, it generally carries with it the suggestion of employment that you can mm. go on to get another job. And that has been the historical precedent with technology. So, for example, when nylon replaced jute and hemp and sisal as the material that ropes are made of, the rope maker may have been sacked, but he went on to get a job as a chemical processing technician making the new nylon ropes. Mm. So we've seen this shift throughout history, and the norm has been that technology creates more jobs than it destroys. And now we're seeing the reverse, that innovation sees automation as the default setting. Yeah, one of the few growth areas this year, apart from home furnishings, of course, has been in logistics. As we head into this second or third wave of coronavirus or a seemingly permanent first wave in certain English-speaking developed countries, mm. we're seeing a growth in the demand for delivery riders and drivers. But this is likely to be a short-term trend for a number of reasons. Firstly, that we expect to find some kind of vaccine or coping mechanism for coronavirus. Uh, in the US recently, the uh, psychedelic band Flaming Lips recently held a concert where the entire audience were 
encased in zorbs, you know, those big inflatable balls that you use for rolling downhill in. Now, obviously, that's not a practical solution for mass entertainment. It's very sweaty, for one thing. But it is an ingenious, adaptive use of current technology. But secondly, and back to those logistics riders, we've seen how much money those same companies are putting into research and development to create drones that will either fly or drive your order to the door with no human interaction or interventions. Which brings us back to insourcing, I assume? Well, yes, I called it insourcing because for many people it could be the end of the kind of employment that they had pre-pandemic. We've seen this amazing and unprecedented acceleration of automated tech services being used since the start of the year. That includes things like robots that take food and essentials into people under quarantine. So we've seen these great applications of technology that are reducing transmission risks. I think a lot of people have the idea that once we find a way to be normal again, these machines or cloud services are going to be mothballed and they're suddenly going to get their jobs back. Mm. So just look at retail as an example. Uh, Bricks and mortar, we've been told, has been on borrowed time for years now. Mm. Uh, Companies like Amazon pursue really aggressive pricing strategies, and these are interwoven with legal tax practices that give them an edge and a considerable cost advantage over traditional retailers. Now, COVID has placed barriers between us and the stores we used to shop at. Uh, In Malaysia at the time of recording, those are actual physical barriers manned by police and soldiers. So we're forced to buy things online that we might not have considered doing before. Uh, We're being separated from that mentality of try before you buy and nudged towards this one-click shop and ship. So I'm sure, you know, we've all heard the delivery rider at the door and we haven't had a clue what she or he is actually delivering to us, yeah. uh, especially for those of us who make duvet decisions and the next morning only have a hazy memory of what we added to the basket at bedtime. Now, I know this sounds like a tangent, but these are behaviours and trends that are likely to be sticky. So we'll carry on buying online even after the worst of this crisis is over. So I'm calling this end sourcing because it is a massive trend towards replacing human jobs with machines. Do you think that this might be um, a little far-fetched or, or even radical? You, you can't phase out every human job overnight. No, but we are accelerating what was already a trend. So coronavirus could end up being a sort of negative Moore's law for employment. Uh, You know, Moore's law holds that computing power doubles every two years. Well, we could find that employment levels halve within a certain time frame. It might be 20 years, it might be 10 years, it might be five years. But what we've seen elsewhere with technological acceleration is that those trends move from being 20 to 10 to 5 very rapidly. The thing that you think will take 20 Mm. tends to take 5. So, of course, you know, companies will still be hiring new executives. Shops will still need retail assistance. Cafes will need counter, kitchen and floor staff. But the question is, for how much longer? You Mm. know, look at some of the technology that has been normalized this year. We've seen from China to Canada these ultraviolet radiation-emitting robots that can be used to sterilise everything from operating theatres to shopping mall concourses. But surely that's because these jobs have become hazardous for humans, right? 
Well, yes, but they were never actually healthy for humans. It was just mm. what we considered to be an acceptable risk, especially when you considered the cost of the technology it would take to replace the human staff. But janitorial staff, by definition, work with chemicals in dirty and contaminated places with varying degrees of protection. So they have that risk exposure to bodily fluids, viruses, spoiled and hazardous waste, even when we're not in a pandemic situation. I mean, I worked as a, a garbage collector for a few months in my younger days, and you were constantly wondering about diseases like hepatitis because you're picking mm. fairly gross stuff up and, you know, you're wiping your face with your hand or your sleeve. You have to worry about needles in some places because things like gloves only provide partial protection. And coronavirus has changed those risk-benefit calculations. Of course. And, you know, if you have to shell out 30 or 50,000 US dollars for a robot cleaner, you're not going to put it back in the cupboard a few months later, especially mm. if it turns out to be effective and reliable, because you no longer have to put an employee's health at risk to do a job that few of us actively want, but is still critical to our public health. And that machine isn't going to call in sick. It doesn't take holidays and it doesn't want to have a tea break. And as with the project in Canada, one machine may be able to sterilise multiple locations in a single day or night. And what's different about 2020 is that we aren't seeing these technologies drift in one by one. Well, yes, circumstances have required us to resort to this automation en masse. So you and I both have a lot of uh, DJ friends whose livelihoods have disappeared this year because, you know, clubbing currently isn't a thing. Uh, a mm. lot of them have been doing live streaming on various platforms. They've been putting their mixes online and they've been relying on the cloud to reach out to their fans. But those cloud services are the same ones that threaten their long-term future because machine learning tools can learn from all those mixes. And they yeah. can use that information to produce machine-generated mixes and visuals. Does this link back to the vision systems linked to AI we discussed uh, a few weeks ago? Well, yes. I mean, with DJs, we talk about the ability to read a crowd, to, to feel the emotion that's happening on the dance floor. Uh, a few weeks ago, we gave the example of cameras linked to artificial intelligence that can study and identify micro-expressions. So imagine yeah. that kind of system looking down at a crowded dance floor with cameras studying the crowd, watching the speed and reaction of their movements. Maybe there are infrared lenses as well, taking physical uh, temperature checks. So the machine DJ might react to shifts in mood or movement on the floor faster than a human DJ can because its systems are spotting those subtle shifts faster. And it can be anticipatory rather than reactive. So as I said, it can respond faster. Uh, and a human DJ may have hundreds or, or thousands of tracks on a thumb drive or a server, and they're going to have that recall of many of the moments uh, that those tracks created. But the AI could have hundreds or thousands or millions of tracks connected and distributed across clubs across the world. And it has this enormous data set that it can then use to create the perfect set. DJs and janitors aren't the world, though, right? No, but at the start of the year, could you imagine either profession being superfluous? You know, I know we're going into a break now, but after that, we'll have a look at uh, less polarising professions and start to examine how many of them are really safe from this trend of outsourcing. 
You're listening to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Beyond Frivolous Matters, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This is Matt Splained. I'm Rich Bradbury. End sourcing. According to MSP's Matt Armitage, it's the process of outsourcing and insourcing jobs to technology, an action that could rapidly shrink the number of jobs available to human workers. Well, one of the, the interesting things is, I mean, I was when I was thinking about this uh, episode, I listened to... Uh, Planet Money's podcast, uh, an episode called Call Center Callout. And that right. was all about companies in the US that use gig economy strategies to employ virtual call center operatives. Now, of course, you know, those workers aren't classified as employees, they're private contractors, but their calls are monitored, recorded, and reviewed. So Planet Money didn't specify, but I'm imagining that um, artificial intelligence with natural language processing abilities would be doing some of that initial quality control of their work and then making the recommendations where the human QC staff should start to to take a look. But the grading criteria that they mentioned had this very machine-like feel to them. Yeah, I think that's something you've mentioned before in the past, uh, workers being treated as though they were machines. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, late 20th century economics, at least when I was studying it, had this very mechanistic feel to it. You know, workers are units of labor, all that Mm. kind of thing. And I'm not alleging there's anything deliberate about it. But as we see companies embrace automation tools, you wonder if there is an element of subconscious conditioning that goes along with it. And is it easier to make human workers redundant if you regard them? And more importantly, if you can get those workers to actually regard themselves as obsolete machines. Isn't this just the way the so-called fourth industrial revolution evolves? Again, it, it depends on your idea of where we fit into that process. You know, as I mentioned before, technological leaps have uh, usually increased employment opportunities. But now technology isn't replacing industries as much as it's replacing workers. You know, those big, beautiful coal mines that Donald Trump loves to talk about so much, they might have employed scores or hundreds of workers a generation ago. But Mm. now there might only be a dozen computer technicians on site monitoring what is pretty much an entirely automated extraction process. So what were once blue-collar jobs that provided an income for an entire community are now jobs for a handful of high-paid, highly qualified technicians that wouldn't keep a village shop going. Okay, so how widespread do you think insourcing could become? Well, I got these figures from a New Scientist piece called Will Robots and AI Take Our Jobs in COVID-19 Socially Distanced Era by Sandy Ong. As I've said on the show many times, the New Scientist really needs to work on the snappiness of its titles. Uh, (laughs) But an analysis carried out by uh, McKinsey in 2017 suggested that automation could replace up to 800 million workers by 2030. Now, we have to put that into context 
the global workforce currently numbers about uh, 3.5 billion. So if we assume that number remains relatively stable, that 800 million represents almost a quarter of the current global workforce being shed over the next 10 years. That's one in four workers. Yet we still hide behind the idea that our own job is essential and that it's always someone else who can, get, uh, who can be replaced, right? Well, yeah, to put it in context, again, from the New Scientist piece, you know, an Oxford University study back in 2013 found that machines and machine learning would be able to replace human workers in 47% of US jobs within 20 years. Wow. Uh, that study's authors maintain that the figures remain consistent seven years later. So that puts us into a similar time frame as the 2030 we mentioned before, 2033 mm. rather than 2030. But when we go back to that example of call center operatives, you know, chatbots are increasingly becoming the first line of contact we have with companies and organizations online. And it can often be difficult to tell when we're talking to a machine and when we're talking to a person. Because the human workers are pushed to be more machine-like. Well, partly. I mean, obviously, they're not encouraged to give out personal details and they're tasked with keeping control of the conversation. So you're actively limiting the parameters of that interaction. But at the other end, you have these huge advances in natural language processing in terms of both comprehension and conversation. So we covered the example of GPT-3, the open AI machine learning system that can now write articles on pretty much whatever topic you give it a data set to work on. Now, obviously, that's worrying for someone like me because copywriting is my fallback option for the hard mm. times. And as we figured out in uh, MSP138, GPT-3 is at least as funny as me, if not more so. So <laughs> within those limited parameters, we may never know whether it's a machine or a person that's actually handling our query. And what kind of rate of acceleration have we seen for, for chatbot use, uh, particularly this year? Well, it's hard to get concrete figures because, you know, usually you look at these things retrospectively and we're still mid-2020, even if we're towards the end of the year. But I'll quote you some of the figures that New Scientist obtained that indicate where the trend is heading. Uh, PayPal was apparently using software to field 65% of its message-based customer queries as of March this year. And IBM reported a 40% jump in demand for its Watson assistant software that underpins many of these chat systems for the, uh, the early quarters of this year. And don't forget that there's a double whammy going on. Companies have had their own workers or outsourced workers confined to their homes. Uh, so there's this distribution effect with the pandemic. Mm. If mm. you're a US company that outsources its customer relations services to a company in the Philippines, then that sector of your operations is beholden to the health system or health situation rather in that country. And you have to do what the relevant national or local authorities are saying in terms of regulating those businesses. So you're dealing with a lot of different jurisdictions. The second part of the whammy is that we're all at home and we're buying online. So companies are seeing a corresponding increase in demand for customer service interactions at a time where they can't guarantee existing staffing levels, let alone to expand to meet this new demand. And of course, when do we all want to get in touch with those companies? Generally outside of business hours, because those are the hours that we're occupied with work. And mm. into that void comes this generation of very capable, reliable chatbots 
that can stay online 24-7. I mean, there has to be a caveat, though. I mean, you can only replace people when the technology is up to the task. Totally. Uh, The technology to replace all 800 million of these workers doesn't yet exist or isn't yet advanced enough. You know, we won't get to January the 1st, 2021 and find all those professions gone forever. Uh, For a lot of us, AI and machines will play a growing but still supporting role in the work we do. Uh, They'll assist us. They'll do a lot of that boring and mundane kind of trudging and analysis. Uh, Even the 2013 Oxford University survey that I mentioned, they used machine learning algorithms to trawl the data to find out how many people's jobs machine learning would put them into. Because, you know, why wouldn't you? That's what it's there for. But Back to your statement, and as I mentioned in part one, normally we see these changes in isolation. We see them one company or one industry at a time. They're viewed as changes that affect individuals or small groups. What 2020 has done is allow us to see those trends being applied to multiple sectors simultaneously. What about that? uh, the counter-argument that automation will lead, as it always has done, to more jobs, just different jobs. We hear this kind of argument a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of divergent opinions. Uh, The New Scientist quotes the Boston University economist, James Besson, who says that these changes are likely to lead to more churn rather than fewer jobs. He makes the point that we will need robotics experts to maintain and service many of these machines, that the demand for drone operators, data scientists, cryptographers, video tech support, and even plenty of professions that we haven't invented yet, all of these will see an increase in demand. In his model of the future, one of the biggest issues we have to tackle is going to be education and this process of upskilling. Because the idea of taking a four-year degree at the age of 18, it starts to look a little bit redundant when the professions you're training for disappear after 10 years. So education and retraining are going to have to be ongoing and they're going to have to be pretty much constant. So I'm guessing that you you don't necessarily agree with uh, his predictions. Well, I don't see that any of the roles that he lays out can't also be done by machines. In fact, machines are already making inroads into a lot of those areas, uh, data analysis and cryptography, for example. You know, there are quantum cryptography programs that it's pretty much impossible for humans to grasp because the data is being generated in a dimension that we don't have direct access to. We're already seeing the rise of drone swarms now. I, I know that scares a lot of people, but there was a chilling video from a couple of years ago of a swarm of tiny drones using a distributed AI to control them. And that means there's no leader. The lead mm. AI is simply switched to the most relevant drone. So unless we make a deliberate decision to favor people when it comes to employment, I can't see this happening. You know, when I sit down and I look at the technology, when I start to run uh, my own kind of simulations of that evolution, it still comes down to human employment being headed in the wrong direction. Do you think then that we're prepared for a future without work? Well, the easy answer to that is no. Uh, We've already seen that 
uncertainty is creeping in at a, a grassroots level. Surveys around the world are starting to show that people do have a fear of automation in their long-term job prospects. Unfortunately, globally, we still have a political class that struggles to understand that uh, iOS and Android are different things, let alone have a firm handle on how AI is reshaping our societies. So there is a disconnect. We're not really seeing this being taken seriously yet at a policy level, especially when so many of these tech companies uh, are so adept at political lobbying. And what might that world look like? Well, there was a recent Star Trek-themed fundraiser for Joe Biden, which was uh, hosted by Star Trek megafan and former presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Various cast members from various iterations of the show appeared. And I think it was Will Wheaton who thanked Yang for mainstreaming the concept of universal basic income during his campaign. So the ideas are out there. Um, and to your question of what the world might look like. So I think that's an exercise that uh, we might run next week. You know, we've done it mm. in the past, but I think it would be a useful thought experiment to return to. But in terms of wrapping things up for today, I think we're going to look back at 2020 as the year that AI-assisted automation went mainstream. You have been listening to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. If you missed any part of this show, don't forget you can download the podcast wherever you normally listen to your podcast from. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.